So like I said, last time we were together in Revelation, we looked at this opening scene of the parousia, which just simply means coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Here, Babylon has been utterly destroyed. We've seen that in, in chapter 17 through 18. And what was used to destroy her was actually the beast and his minions himself. But now the Lord turns to the remaining remnants of evil. He turns to the beast, to the false prophet, that great deceiver, and all those who have taken allegiance with him. That is, all those who bear the mark of worldliness, who bear his mark, who worship him, who go after this beastly system. We saw now how that great final battle will take place. We got that first picture, that first glimpse, that preparatory glimpse of the rider himself, our king coming out of heaven, a great description of him and his heavenly armies, which we saw were both angels and saints, both God's angels and us who are going to ride out with Christ. Do we need to do the fighting? No, he will lay waste himself. We are there to observe and to glorify and to praise the victory of the lamb. We saw incredible descriptions about him. We saw the great white horse which he rides on, which is a symbol of the victory of purity and holiness. That holiness will be vindicated when Christ returns. We saw his names. He is called faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And we are told that he has a name which no one knows. We'll see tonight precisely when that name will be unveiled for us to know. We saw his description. His eyes are like a flame of fire, a picture of his ability to see all things, that nothing will be hidden from his eyes. No one will be able to hide from his judgment. On his head were many diadems. The picture there is that all he is king of kings and lord of lords. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. A clothe dipped in a robe dipped in blood, a picture of his judgment. As we look to Isaiah 65, and now he treads the winepress of God's wrath on his enemies. And that's the picture of the blood spattering up on to his robes. A picture of sim- simply that his judgment will be final. A sharp sword comes from his mouth. The, the word of God, which will bring judgment on the nations. He speaks judgment. When he comes, he will not need to wield a physical sword. The the, the Lord of glory will not be walking around uh, having to chop off limbs. He will speak and they will be defeated. The one who spoke the cosmos into existence will not need to physically fight anybody. He will speak and the battle will be over. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4 where where Paul talks about he will crush the enemy by the breath of his mouth. He will speak it. It's over. It's done. And they will lay down all weapons. His name is written on his thigh, right? When we talked about what that symbol is, that's both the place of where the sword was tied in battle. It's also the place where a covenant was made. A person would put their hand under a thigh. Why? Because that's where the sword was. And when you were making an oath or a covenant in the old covenant, what you're saying is if I break this, I deserve to die. I deserve the sword. And so by his name being written on his thigh 
And uh, it, what it's, it's symbolic of is his name is both where his power is and his faithfulness is declared. So his name is tied to both his power and his faithfulness. He will be faithful to overthrow evil. And the power of it will be his name. And then we saw his armies. Lastly, we saw his purpose. We are told that he comes to judge and make war in righteousness. He's not just some angry uh, tyrant who's just coming to throw a hissy fit. This will be done in perfect righteousness. So much so that when he bolts out of heaven, everyone who has followed the beast will bow, declaring that he is king of king and lord of lords, and they will amen his judgment because it will be done in such righteousness. He's coming to strike down the nations. That is all those who have raised up against him and his people. He will rule with a rod of iron. A picture of his perfect faithfulness and rule over the world. When he comes, all the kingdoms, all of it will be his. The kingdom of the world will, have, will become the kingdom of the Lord. And what, is, what happens next? We don't see it here yet. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we find out that when the Lord comes... All of his enemies are placed under his feet. Who then does he turn the kingdom over to? His father. It then becomes the kingdom of his father forever. So the Lord's whole purpose is to come to reclaim what humanity lost. He comes to reclaim all of the cosmos under his authority. And then once he has fully claimed it and cleansed it of all wickedness, then he will turn it over to the father. And it will be the father's kingdom Forever. Forever. To tread the winepress of God's wrath, He comes to bring judgment. And we see that judgment today. Now, with that description in verses 11 through 16, let's look at verses 17 through 21 and let's focus in on here the actual description of the battle itself. Now, before we read, and as you're getting there, Think about the descriptions that we saw of Jesus. Everything about his description was a description of someone who's already fought the battle. Notice his robes already dipped in blood. That's what it's seen. He's already riding the white horse of victory. And the reason why that's so important is because John wants to make clear to all of God's people. Brothers and sisters, the victory is already as sure before the battle's ever even started in that sense. It's guaranteed. His victory is utterly guaranteed. He's already dressed as the victor. He won the battle at Calvary. He's merely closing things up when he comes again. The victory's done. It's over. The, 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 the victory of God's people in Jesus is utterly guaranteed. And now we watch him flawlessly defeat his adversaries. Verse 17 through 21. Of Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. It's not a pretty picture at all of this battle. And there's a reason for that. God wants to paint this picture of the judgment to come in the most horrific terms that He can. Now, why would He do that? So that you won't want to be there in the, under the judgment. You'll want to be in the army of the Lamb. That's, that's a pretty clear cut. Why do I want to make it? And, and make it as, as absolutely as horrific as I can in human terms. It's so that it might make you go in your heart. I probably should get right with the Lamb. I probably should get right with the guy on the white horse because I don't want to be on the other side of this. That's the whole purpose. It's not for us to just simply go, I, I bet that's exactly how it's going to be. There's a bunch of birds and crows that are going to just be plucking out car- horses, carcasses, and a bunch of people. That's, it's not for us to do that. It's not for us to just go, well, that's what it's literally going to look like. It's for us to go, that, that picture that that would have created... In the mind of a first century Christian would have been, that's the literally most terrifying thing I can think of. So I better be right with the the lamb. I better be right with the king. That's the purpose of this. What we're given here is what we call a macabre parity. Now a macabre parity, macabre is simply a terrifying picture um, a, a picture of disaster and terror, but it's a parody. What is this great supper of God parodying? It's parodying the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what God's laying forth here is, which supper do you want to belong to? Do you want to be in the marriage feast of celebration and joy? Or do you want to be in the one of destruction? Everyone's going to be invited to a supper. Which one will you be at? That's really the key. Do you want to be at the one of celebration or the one of terrible destruction? Everyone will be at a supper. Which one will you be at? And the answer is, is, are you connected to Christ? If you're connected to Christ, you will be at that first marriage supper. If you are connected to the beast, that is the world, you will be at this supper, this terrifying picture. And what John is doing here in this picture is he is weaving together all of these Old Testament pictures of the final battle. And we see this kind of picture of birds and beasts gathering on the day of the Lord to eat and feast upon the defeated foes. We see this throughout many of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 9. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Jeremiah 46.10 That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. That's another term we've seen a lot of, the Euphrates. So what we see here throughout these Old Testament prophecies is this picture of God calling the beast of the earth to come and eat those who were against him. 
Once again, this is parody. This is symbolic parody. What does God call the great enemy of God's people? A beast. And what does the beast seek to do God's people? He seeks to devour us. That's literally what it says. The serpent, he sought to devour the male child and then devour the woman and her offspring. The serpent seeks to devour us, so the beast following suit with the serpent wants to devour God's people. And so what what the Lord is doing in this picture is giving a picture of this great reversal. You beast, you wanted to devour my people, you will be devoured by the beast. You will be utterly defeated and destroyed, not mine. Not mine, but you will be devoured. That's the picture. That's what's going on. But it's also tying us directly back to a very important scene in biblical prophecy. Something that is is being played out here before us. We've already been introduced to it before in chapter 16 of Revelation. Now we're getting it brought back in this recapitulating cycle here again. And that is that prophetic battle of Gog and Magog in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You saw it in... Revelation 16, we see it again here. We'll see it again in the sixth cycle in Revelation 20, verse 8. Uh, and where this, this picture of the devouring, the beast coming to devour the defeated foes of God's people, symbolized by Gog and Magog, is seen in Ezekiel's prophecy of them being devoured. So we read this in Ezekiel 39, verse 4, and Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. Ezekiel prophesies, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. Verse 17 and 20 of Ezekiel 39. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, the drink, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of ram, of lambs, of he goats, of bulls, of all them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. It's Ezekiel 39, 17, 20. You see right where John is getting this revelatory vision from. And what John is revealing to us in the unfolding here is that it is Christ who brings this victory. The Christ is the one who brings this utter victory against the nations assembled against the Lord and His people. And so this picture of the last battle opens with this call of preparation, preparing the beast of the earth to come and devour those enemies of God. In other words, right once again, before the battle has even begun, the victory is already declared. The victory is already declared. That's the picture. In light of the victory, in light of the fact that they are going to lose, they have seen the Lord win over and over again, they still launch their attack against God's people. And we call this the foolish decision of the king's enemies. 
Here we look, we look here at verses 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Here's a picture that even though they recognize that he is powerful and authoritative, they will still come against him and his people. They will still, rather than repent at a glimpse and the knowledge of the victory of Christ, they still fight against it. But is this not what we see throughout all redemptive history? That rather than seeing the glory of Christ and repenting and being saved, people see it and they mock and they gloat and they continue to fight against truth. They continue to fight against reality. They make war on Christ and His people. The reason that you see the chaos in the world the way that you do the way that the reason that you see moral degeneracy at an like just all time high, the reason why you see all of this is because the world is at war with Christ. That's why it's there. The world is at war with Christ. It does not want to submit to its king. It does not want to submit to its ruler. And it's either Christ or chaos. That's it. That's really the two options. You either have Christ and live fruitful living, a blessed society, or you reject Christ and you get chaos. That's it. Because to reject Christ is to reject life. It's to reject truth. It's to reject ethics and value and morality. It's, it's to reject it all. So you've got nothing left but chaos. So what we see here in the last battle is nothing more than the final depiction of what's been happening since Christ came. They've made war on the Lamb and His people. But this will be the last time they do. They would make a foolish decision. And the Lord in His sovereign power has gathered them together. What they think is their own decision, their own power, we're going to go destroy them. We're going to gather together against God's people. They cannot withstand us. If we work together and we're one cause, they can't come against us. They come together in all of this. And what they think they are doing by their own will is nothing more than the sovereign God gathering them Himself. We've already seen this picture of the gathering nations in the battle already. Revelation 16, 14. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. We'll see it again in Revelation 20, verse 8. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. We saw this same picture back when we were preaching in the Messianic Psalms. In Psalm chapter 2, right? Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. Or excuse me, 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burn, burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here they are coming together, the kings of the nations, led by the beast and the false prophet, through this great spirit of deception that the Lord has allowed to come upon them, to gather in one final effort to bring down the, the Lamb and his people. And this is exactly what was prophesied in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2 through 9. 
Son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his hordes, Beth to Garma, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many people who are with you. Be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. For after many days you will be mustered. In the latter days you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely all of them. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and the many peoples with you. Here we see the picture of God, which is nothing more than a symbolic representation of the nations. They are said that they will gather against all of these peoples who have been gathered from the nations to the mountain of Israel. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of the gospel, right? Going out to the nations, gathering one people on the mountain of Israel. Who's the mountain of Israel? Jesus is the mountain of Israel. We've gathered together on Him. And these nations are literally drawn by who? God says Him. I will put a hook in your jaw and cause you to assemble against my people. God is doing this. Why in the world would God gather these nations to bring a final, closing, culminating singular unified attack against his his son and his people. Why would he do that? And we'll see at the end, it's to make his name known. That's why he'll do it this way. For one singular reason, his name will be known to all peoples. That's why he'll do it this way. This is the way that he will do it so that he is supremely glorified in the sight of all peoples. That's why he'll do it this way. And brothers and sisters, that's why Jesus and the Lord, that's why they do everything the way they do. Every reason the Lord does what he does is for the purpose that he would be glorified supremely. So sometimes, right, we don't know why God does things the way that he does. I would say most of the time we don't know why God does the way he does. But there is one thing that I always know, even when I can't see why he does it the way he does. And that is, he did this because there is a level of glory that without this happening, I couldn't know about him. There is a reality about God that without this situation, without this event, whether it's his goodness, his love, his discipline, his mercy, his care, his compassion, without this happening the way it did, I would be robbed of a means of glory, of a means of knowing him in a more intimate, better way that I would have had this never happened. Amen. So, so I may not know the why why, but I know the who behind the why. And I know that he really means it for my good and his glory. Even when I can't see it in the moment.
And that's what's happening in this picture. What looks terrible, what looks as if the, the people of God have come under this incredible onslaught and the nations have come against them and they are unified in their effort and it just seems like this is terrible, this is horrible. It's at the darkest hour that the glory of Christ breaks through and brings victory. But why should we expect anything less? Because that's exactly what happened at Calvary. In the darkest hour of human history, when it looked as if the rider on the horse himself was defeated, he declares to Telestai, it's finished. Victory is won. This is how he operates. He operates so that no human being, so that nobody in the church can ever say, we're the reason for the victory. It was our great evangelistic effort. It was our great outreach program. It was because of just how faithful we are that the world saw the glory of Christ. No, Jesus is the reason for the victory. He's the reason that all peoples will declare King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the reason. We just get to play a part in it. But it's for His glory. Zechariah 14 also makes it clear that this is what the Lord is doing. Zechariah 14, 2-3, the Lord says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. So here we see this picture of the lore of of the nations coming against the new, the true Jerusalem, God's people, His covenantal people. And it will be terrible. The picture there is that it will seek to to pull it away from every way. It will seek to to cause it to commit adultery, to call it to lure it away to to a a wicked living, to a wicked lifestyle. It it will seek to, uh, to, to pillage it and to harm it in every way. And if you think, man, that sounds so terrible at the end. Brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters everywhere right now who that's happening to. We have brothers and sisters in the Middle East, in Africa, in parts of India, that right now, that's their daily life. So don't think, oh man, that's going to be one heck of a tribulation. Brothers, we're already there. This will just be the closing of it. This is when it won't happen ever again. Because the Lord will come to vindicate His own. He will come to fight for His own. And everything, every slap, every abuse, every mockery, every pain that was inflicted upon His bride will be paid in full when He comes back. He will be perfect in vindicating his bride. On that day when he comes, as the nations gathered, and he bolts out of heaven in glory to slay them with a word and to bring judgment to all of them who would not repent and turn to him and sought to harm him and his bride. And we see that here in the final defeat. It doesn't take long. 
There's no long, drawn-out battle. There's no, there's no long explanation of how the Lord, you know, how each day, you know, they, 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 they win a little ground and some days they lose a little and it's just this long, drawn-out battle in the world. No, that's not what we see. He comes, he bolts out. What do we see immediately next? And the beast was captured in the false prophet. That's it. That's how quick it will be. He comes out of heaven in glory against the nations. It's over. The generals are done for. They're gone. And I love it. Because he makes sure to judge the people who followed him. He judges their leaders first. He judges the beast. And that that may be individuals. It may be this corporate system who work together as this beast. But he makes the beast and the false prophet, those who deceive the nations, he judges them before the eyes of all those he will then judge. Because he will make them, he will make it absolutely clear the utter foolishness of them following such wicked rulers, such wicked systems. Verse 20 and 21, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. Here we see first the beast and the false prophet judged. These great enemy of God's people, these great deceiver of the nations are now judged before the eyes of the nations who followed them. And we see this as a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 verse 11. Daniel prophesying writes, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. Its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Notice it says that they were thrown alive into the fire. They were thrown alive into the judgment. And this is so important. Because all of these themes of the Bible are coming together very clearly. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Now, uh, we, we see the king turn the, the furnace up as hot as it'll go. Get it as hot as it can be. Who are the only ones killed in that story? The men who sought to inflict the punishment. And who was protected through the fire? God's people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one other who seems to appear like a son of God. In their midst. The Lord. The reason why they're secure from the fire is because the Lord's with them. And the same will be true for us. The reason why we will be secure in this final battle is because the Lord's with us. But all those who sought to bring the punishment against us will then they themselves be punished. And that's the picture here. All of these themes of the Bible are flowing together in the revelation of Christ. We'll see in Revelation 20, verse 10, when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. We're told that he is thrown where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see this grand reality that the Lord will throw the beast. He will throw the false prophet. He will judge the nations. He will throw Satan into the fire as well. And what will be the final thing he destroys? Death. Death's the last enemy. 
That's the final thing that will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be a clear flow that takes place here. But these two beasts and false prophets are judged before the eyes of those that they falsely led. What a terrible day it will be. And this is why the Bible speaks of it being a day of weeping and gnawing of teeth. Because these individuals will look upon the judgment that is before them. They will see it. They will see it. They will behold it. They will weep over it. It will be a terrifying reality. When everything they rejected in their life, when every time that they had, that they had, had the opportunity to repent, every time they had been told about Jesus, every Bible they had in their house that they refused to pick up, every church that they walked away from because they got tired of people, so maybe I don't really need this whole Jesus thing. They will see that played over and over before their eyes and how they decided to foolishly follow the beast. God, it will be terrible. Hell will be terrible, not because of fire. That's the least part of what hell would be. If hell was just physical torment, it would probably not even be that bad. I'll be honest. It's not just physical. Will there be physical torment? Yeah. It's the existential terror of every day having known how close God was and you turned away. And that will especially be the case for those who have been raised in the light of the West. There's a church on every corner. It's the top-selling book in world history. And the Bible makes clear that those who have more light will receive worse judgment. Why? Because the nature of the judgment is any different? No. But because the guilt of the conscience will be far more severe. That's why Jesus would say, to Chorazin and Bethsaida, woe unto you, for it will be better than Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Because if these things would have happened there, they would have repented and believed. In other words, will Tyre and Sidon still be judged? Yes. Why? Because they're still sinners. But it will be worse for you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Why? Because you had the light, a far greater light. And you rejected it. And that will be true for a whole lot of people in these Western nations. They had a whole lot of light. And they did everything they could to extinguish it. And for eternity, that will beat upon their heart. He was so close. And I swatted his hand at every turn. That is what make hell so horrible. And they'll have no one to blame but themselves. And we see that clear that now, after the beast and the false prophet are destroyed, their followers are next in line. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth. Once again, just a symbol of judgment. They are slain by the prosecuting judgment of the king himself. The picture of the birds being gorged is simply the reality that this judgment is final. It's over. That's all that means. When it says that the birds were full, it just means that it's complete. The judgment has been completed. It's final. It's final. All those who rejected Christ are utterly laid waste in judgment. Repentance is over. There's no more chance. It's done. 
There's only one more enemy that he will now turn to. And that's Satan. And the greatest enemy of all, death. And that's what he'll focus on in the sixth cycle of visions in chapter 20. This is an incredible picture of judgment. And it's what something that Jesus talks about we've already seen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40 through 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This picture of the, the Messiah coming and separating the wheat and the chaff, that's precisely what John the Baptist's message is going to be. You'll see part two of that next week. Why do you need to repent? Because He's coming. And all those who are divorced from Him, who are separated from Him, will face the fires of His judgment. But all who repent and believe in Him will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a seal of the security they have from judgment. And this torment does not end. There is no annihilationism. They aren't just thrown in there and then, boop, they burned up, they're done. They're just ashes now. No. This torment lasts day and night forever. It is an eternal torment. Just like we have an eternal life. Revelation 14.11 And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. No rest. Day or night. Just torment. The agonizing reality of how close God always was. And I swatted him away at every turn. Why does he do it this way? Why does God judge in this manner? Why does he do it with such ferocity? Why does he allow them to be gathered? Why does He allow His people endure through this and behold the salvation rather than being secretly raptured away and just not even having to deal with any of it? Why? Why does He want this to happen exactly the way He has laid out in these cycles? And the answer is clear. He does it so that His name will be known. This is precisely... Precisely what that whole passage on Gog and Magog is all about. God gives that prophecy to Ezekiel to make clear, I will do it this way so that my name will be known among the nations. You remember something back in that description of Jesus? Back in that description, what was one of the things Jesus was called? A name that no one knows. It's at this day that that name will be revealed. You see, Jesus has already been revealed to us as faithful and true. He has been revealed to us as Word of God. He has been revealed to us as King of kings and Lord of lords. But there is a name that we do not yet know. There's the fullness of Jesus which we have yet to behold. That on the day when He returns, we will fully know. And this is made clear in those prophecies of Scripture. 
Ezekiel 39, verse 7, the prophecy against Gog and Magog. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Why does he do it the way he does? So that my holy name will be revealed to the nations. And it will be profaned no more. I believe the reason the Lord saves one name for us to know until the end is because there will be a name revealed about Christ, a name which no one else yet knows that has been kept back for one purpose. It will be a name that will only ever be honored, never profaned. Every other name of Jesus has been profaned by this perverted world. I mean, think about the kind of t-shirts he's just thrown on nowadays. It's just perverted. We, We just... Flippantly, think about it. Who else is using their God's name in a cuss word? Who else does that? No one. Ours, though, just gets flippantly thrown around. And Jesus says, I know that would happen. But I have kept a name. And I will reveal it on that last day in the midst of my people. And that name will never be profaned. It will only be glorified. Both in salvation and judgment. Listen to what he says again in Ezekiel 39, 28, the very end of this. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land and I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. He's doing all of this that we might fully know him in a way that without it, we wouldn't know. We will know his name. We will know the fullness of him. Why? Because we will behold him face to face. We're told from scripture. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 when all those things will cease. Why? Because we will behold the perfect. He's talking about Jesus. In that moment, hope and faith will be no more. Because there will be nothing that is left unseen. There will be no more needed for evidence for that which is unseen. Hope for things longed for. Because it's just culminated. And so the only thing that will last when that which we behold face to face, the perfect to come, Jesus, the only thing that will last for eternity is love. Faith and hope will cease. And we will know Him in a mighty way. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling that that name, now do I know? Nope. Will I ever write this in a book? Nope. But I have a a sneaky suspicion that that name that will be revealed on that day will be directly tied to his said, his steadfast love. I just think so. Because his steadfast love is what will never be profaned. That's the reason for it all. The steadfast love endures forever. I want to close by reading Zephaniah chapter 3. 
to lay out this picture of the glory of the Lord on the day of the Lord who makes His name known among all people. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8 through 20. A lengthy portion, but a beautiful text. The prophet Zephaniah receives from the Lord, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Oh Lord, please. And all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. For there shall be found in their mouth no deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a day it will be. That's what this is all about. This picture of judgment is nothing more than the other side of the coin of salvation. He comes to remove that which oppresses His people. He comes to remove anything that might cause His people to fear. He comes to remove anything that might cause you to mourn ever again, to feel sad ever again, to feel disheartened ever again, to feel anxiety ever again. All that judgment that you saw that has been fully devoured is for you. It's for you. So that you won't ever have to be afraid. I'll gather the poor, the brokenhearted. I'll gather the lame and the outcast. And I'll make them fear no more. You know where Jesus got his beatitudes from? I think here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the humble and lowly, for they shall be exalted. 
Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall rejoice. Where does that come from? That promise in Zephaniah. That's what he is going to do for his people. That's what he is doing for his people. So you have no need to fear the judgment of the Lord if you're in Christ Jesus. If anything, you just have to hold back your heart from saying, would you do it already? Would you do it already, Jesus? I so long to be with you. I so long to know what it's like to not fear ever again. I so long to know what it's like to be perfectly content with who I am in God. I so long to never think another negative thought to another person. I so long to think, and never, uh, think of a ne- another negative thought about myself. I so long to be with Jesus. And He will come. And He will make His name known. What a day it'll be. Closing takeaways from this closing of the fifth cycle. These are a little bit different from your ones last week. Because uh, we went through them last week. But here's some more for focusing on this week's text. First... Both God's salvation and judgment is for the upholding of His name. The focus on God's name in these passages, in these prophetic texts of His coming and His salvation and His judgment, is to help us remember that it is not primarily our name or our interest that God is ultimately concerned about. It's His name. It's His name that God is vindicating. And your vindication is merely attached to your identification with His name. God is doing nothing with just Blake Hart in mind in the sense of like, I just want to make Blake feel so happy. No. My happiness is only tied to my satisfaction in the name. If you're not satisfied in the name, you won't ever be happy. I forget right off the top of my head, and maybe one of you can help me. But the Bible says that those whose heart earnestly seeks after the Lord, those He will give the desires of their heart. Notice what that text says. It comes out of the Psalms. Those who seek after the Lord, who earnestly seek after or go after the Lord, they will receive the desires of their heart. Does that say that God's just going to give you everything you want? No. He says, if you desire God, you'll get God. He'll give you everything you need in Him. And so, your blessedness, your salvation, your hope, your joy, your eternal life is merely tied to your satisfaction in His name. God does everything to uphold His name. How often do you read in the Scriptures, by my name I will do this, says the Lord. Because He puts it on His name. Because there's nothing higher He can put it on. God can't swear upon anything higher than Himself. So His vindication was not ultimately about, I need to make, I need to make up for all your boo-boos, people. No, His coming out in judgment is the vindication of His name. That His creation rebelled against Him 
who was so good in His creation of it. The Lord is a jealous God. He consumes. He is an all-consuming fire. You know that's why the sacrificial system was set up the way it was, right? Why did the, the, the sacrifices have to be consumed in fire? Because the picture is, that's not you. It's a substitute. God is an all-consuming fire. So every time that fire swallowed up that sacrifice, it was a picture of, that wasn't you. Praise be to God. Because that's what the judgment is. You being consumed by an all-consuming fire. He comes to vindicate His own. Not inherently for His own sake, but for His name's sake. And all of those who have His name written on us will receive the vindication that He pours out for His name. Our salvation is found only in our identification with His name. That's why you should wear that name Christian proudly. Because my salvation is not tied in who I am or what I've done. My salvation is tied to a name, to a person, Jesus. And His name is written on me. Secondly, He's coming. He's coming. Whether it be tomorrow, tonight, 10,000 years, He's coming. And every second He delays is nothing but a picture of His patient forbearance to bring one more to salvation. But when the fullness of His elect, when the fullness of His people have been gathered from the nations, then He will come. And He will come swift and powerfully. There will be no opposition that will be brought against Him that will slow Him down. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you in, are you dressed for a wedding? Do you have the garbs of His righteousness? Are you still looking like the world? He's coming. Three, the last battle won't take long. It won't be some crazy, terrible, like, man, this thing is taking forever. The Lord's got to get some better generals. You know, He's not going to be like Lincoln in the Civil War who has to keep firing generals because they're no good. It's going to be over. It's just going to be over. He will speak and it will be over. Every arm will be laid down. It will be over. And every knee will bow. And the safest place is on the battlefield with Christ, not in the barracks with comfort. We talked about that last week. Brothers and sisters, as much as we want to look ahead and think, well, the battle's future, brothers, the battle's already. This is just the culmination of the battle. But you're in a war right now. This cosmic war is being won. Right? Here's how Jesus works. Just like you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Christ won the victory, is winning the victory, and will win the victory. Right now, that battle, that cosmic conflict is around you. That's what Paul says. We are in a spiritual war. You do not war against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and spirits. You're at war. Take heart. If you find yourself constantly under attack, if you feel that spiritual warfare around you, if you feel like it's really taking off, that's a good thing. 
Because the safest place to be is in the battlefield with Christ. If there's nothing coming against you, be weary. Because it means you probably aren't close to the cross. The conflict got worse around Christ the closer he got to Calvary. And I promise you, the closer you get to the cross, the more conflict you will face. So if you find yourself in the midst of the battle, it's there you are in the safest place. Because Christ is in the battlefield, not in the barracks. So get out. Gird yourself for battle. And go fight for Christ. Waging the war of the gospel on all evil in this world. We have the sword ourselves. Let's take it to the nations. That they might be slain by the sword of salvation and the gospel. Rather than the sword of judgment that will come with Christ. Go fight the battle, Christian soldiers. Because the safest place is in the battlefield with Christ. Not the barracks with comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the glorious realities of of Christ's victory. For the knowledge that he will be perfect in his battle. He will be perfect in victory. That no evil will stand against him. That there will be nothing that causes us pain or suffering or heartbreak or, or anything once he is done but that He will clear out all things which oppress and cause problems for His people. That we will be gathered together in a perfect new heaven and earth, fully and completely able to worship Him with nothing causing to to turn our eyes away, to pull our hearts away, to deceive our minds away, but that with one accord, all of who we are, mind, body, and soul, every part of us will be fully oriented towards You together as one body, celebrating the glories of the King who came to save us for His name's sake. And so, Lord, as You taught us to pray, let us live, hallowed be Your name. Let everything about our lives seek to give glory to Your name's sake. Let everything about our message seek to bring glory to Your name, about our life to bring glory to Your name. And let us wage war with the Gospel. Let us address the evils of the world with the truths of the gospel. Let our lives bear fruits with repentance that we would take care of the needs of others while sharing them the gospel. That we would not, that we would not only see the spiritual need, but the, the physical needs of our neighbors. That we would, have a, 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 that we would be such radical lights for Christ that the world would be afraid to even come against us because of the King we represent. Lord, let them see Christ working in our lives in such a way that they would shudder like Gamaliel in the face of those apostles and say, it's probably best we just leave them alone. Oh God, make us a strong and mighty army for you. And let us live a day, let live every day prepared for the day you come, dressed in the wedding garments of your righteousness, waiting for the day we see your face in glory. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the victory that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.